So yeah, you're you're gonna get a wide a wide reach on this podcast. <laughs> yes, will really help your personal brand. So just that's why I'm just, here. I'm here to I'm here, I'm here to grind. Okay, I'm here to build the brand. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Connor Jolly? That's what the world will figure out tonight. Ever heard of a podcast where one of the hosts has no idea what's going on? Well, now you have. Welcome to Unprompted, the show where one of the hosts shows up completely unaware of the conversation topic for the episode. From technology to society to history, life, and more, each episode features a unique topic, and the hosts unravel the details together using nothing but their background knowledge and past experiences. Hosted by Luke Bogus and Jared Arts, we hope you enjoy today's Unprompted conversation. Mr. Jared. Mr. Luke. And Mr. Connor. Yes, we have three people on this call today. How are you, Connor? I am doing great. It is wonderful to be here. How are you? Yeah, doing excellent. We have not had a guest on the pod in a, in a hot second. Um, so coming in hot with season two, we're mixing it back up. Uh, and one of the things we're bringing back is the um, highly rated episode of the guests last season. Um, you know, all the reviews and listens that we got on that episode, we knew we had to bring it back. Um, just thanks to the, again, high praise we got from all of our listeners. They love that concept. So um, we're, we're back with another close friend. Uh, his name's Connor. Connor, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello. My name is Connor Jolly. I'm a good friend of these guys. I graduated from the University of Nebraska last year with a degree in computer science and business. Now I am an options trader at Susquehanna International Group. Um, I will give a quick disclosure that I will be talking about some <laughs> things which are tangentially related to the industry I work in and the job I do. So um, all the opinions I present today are mine and not my firm's. And nothing in here is investing advice. We will make that clear. Yes. So, with that, that is a little bit of a mouthful. However, <laughs> uh, now that that's out of the way, we can start having fun. So you're telling me when you uh, when you told me to you know buy Bitcoin before this call, that wasn't investment advice. Uh, you might be confusing that with GameStop. I don't know. <laughs> ah. <okay. laughs> Man, I, I think we should have done that. advice. <laughs> We should have done that disclosure, Jared. I think uh, we have definitely slandered uh, products that perhaps our company might may or may not be tangentially related to. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe folks. disclosures to start to be part of our brand. You know, yeah, that's true. we, uh, you know, Luke and I also do not represent the firm we worked at, Microsoft. <laughs> you should have been saying that since day one. Thanks for the reminder, Connor. We're, we're pumped yes. you're here. Um, as a reminder to all the listeners, the concept behind the podcast obviously is unprompted. One of us, Jared or I, will come with the topic. The other person's unprompted. But we have a special twist when we have a guest in that Jared and I are both unprompted because the guest brings the topic. So we have no idea what's going to go on. We're excited for this conversation. Usually goes on for about 45 minutes. We'll figure it out. We'll go from there. Um, should be a blast. But Jared, do you want to say anything before we just hand it over to Connor to kick us off? I mean, thank you, Connor, for, for coming on the podcast. I am extremely excited to hear what you have to talk about because um, in our just normal conversations, we we have a very consistent set of topics um, between you and me and usually our other friend, Nick. So I'm excited to see if we uh, continue that or if you have something completely different, uh, completely different for us. But yeah, I guess if, if you're ready to go, if you're ready to roll, go ahead and kick us off. Absolutely. Uh, very excited. So I come to you all today with an acronym. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. 
The acronym is ESG. Does that ring any bells for you guys? I can't say it does. Okay. And how about you, Jared? I do not have an intelligent guess as to what so that e- is. ESG is one of the biggest sort of hot-button issues in finance today. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, Governance. And mm-hmm. these three pillars are driving a ton of investment decisions today. The basic thesis is that an ESG investor will want to put their money in companies that do good for the environment, are socially good, and have good governance structures. Now, that might take a position of investing in a green energy company. It might take the position of investing in a company that has some sort of social governance structure that's new, um, that has shown that it has a high propensity for you know, meeting diversity targets and making sure that a diverse group of people are involved in the management of the company. Those sorts of things are considered ESG. And some things are considered non-ESG. Those could be you know, oil drilling companies or companies that you know, maybe have faced lots of lawsuits for harassment or for uh, diversity issues, things like that. And so a big question right off the bat is basically why do investors allocate money to the companies that they do? And why do investment advisors pitch some companies to people and not others? And at the end of the day, Financial advisors have a legal duty to, a fiduciary duty is what it's called, to provide their clients which things that are in their best financial interest. And you know, people want to invest in, um, in companies that are doing good things. People are more and more concerned with that and aren't as much as concerned with just squeezing every last drip of profit out of a company. But... Financial advisors have a duty to you know, maximize returns to their clients. And so we are going to try and make the case and we're going to examine the case for and against, you know, does it make good financial sense to do this sort of ESG investing? What are sort of the ways that people can go about pushing ESG change in the industry? You know, what has been some pushback? What is the government doing to get involved? Um, you know, what are some effects of this sort of thinking on the broader financial industry um, and what are some implications for individual investors going way forward so we'll start more specific and we'll start to we'll hopefully broaden out to some deeper questions by the end of it but do you guys have any initial thoughts before we sort of maybe talk about some specifics go first jared if you want i mean i always have a lot of thoughts but, uh, I mean, this is just kind of like the classic, like, stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism, but then extend that on to, like, investment as well as business decisions. And I think that this is going to get really interesting when we talk about timescales, because I would say that when you look at, um, you know, specifically like stakeholder decisions, stakeholder capitalism decisions, and you extend that out over a 30-year timescale, I would argue that most of the time, the you know the social and environmental environmentally good decision is going to also be the financially good decision. Whereas when you shorten that time scale down to one year, five years, ten years, 
that equation starts to change somewhat. So I think that this this short time span is going to be where we're going to have some interesting debates. I think in the long term, just the climate of culture and the climate of the world, I guess, will push all of the decisions to be trending towards those um, economic and social, what economic and social governance would uh, be interested in. So that that's my initial thought. That's where I think we're going to have some interesting conversation. But Luke, I'll let you yeah. I'll let you drop your bombs. No, dude, this this will be a fun one. This is a great topic. Yeah, my my first thought was very similar, like shareholder, shareholder, stakeholder, especially like when you think about like retail investing. Like, I think that adds such an interesting twist in like because before it was you have to build a brand around your company so that you can sell your service or your product. Now it's you have to build a brand around the structure of your business and the way that you run your business so that you can sell shares to retail investors. So it's like the, my head, it, there's obviously lots of implications. Yours, Jared, was like around like, you know, how do we run the business and long term, what does it look like? But I think it's also very interesting when you start to figure out like, what are the goals of these companies now? It's like, well, if you're saying the right thing and you're doing the right thing and you're proving that you're doing the right thing um, to the right audiences, where in the past it was just institutions and now it's like normal people, um, you got to kind of change your pitch, so to speak, change your brand, so to speak. Um, so that's where my mind went instantly was um, like, yeah, from a retail perspective, how that works. So I don't know, Connor, is, are we walking right into what you wanted to talk about? I'm curious. Yeah, this this is a, this is good stuff. This is very good stuff. My, I'll sort of, zero in on one of the things that Jared talked about, and that's the sort of cultural attitudes, you know, changing over time with time scales. Um, th there has been some interesting pushback on ESG. A lot of the main thesis is sort of the stakeholder capitalism that you talked about. That word is very frequently used. And th the question is, will pollution, bad governance, etc., cause long-term cash flow loss? And a phrase that um, a financial columnist named Matt Levine, whose writing I will frequently reference throughout today's episode, phrases it as, will externalities become internalities? Will they become interna internalized where, <clears throat> excuse me, where companies put bad out into the world, so to speak, will that ever be internalized in the form of companies losing cash flow? And it's sort of an open question whether that will be the case or will not be the case. Uh, to give you an example, there have there are some regions that are much less prone to wanting to do ESG activism and ESG investing than others. For example, like the state of Texas would be much less inclined than the state of New York um, because of their different political leanings. One thing that Texas did recently was passed a law banning Texas firms, active Texas firms, from working with or investing in any company that divests in oil resources and oil companies. So they have quite literally banned these sort of ESG investments that you know many people would be looking at. And so the question is, th this, this is the opposite direction that is the ESG thesis. The ESG thesis says that, you know, in the in the long run, regulation will be passed to mitigate these sort of consequences, to mitigate this. Uh, regulation will come in to stop this stuff from being profitable. Companies will shift away from it. Um, that's probably on a more, on a smaller time scale than the 
more alarming, you know, the environment will be destroyed and then there will be nothing left. And, you know, at that point, finances will be all over the place. In the medium term, a lot of the risk to the quote-unquote non-ESG firms is the regulation. And regulation, in a lot of places, seems to be going against that. So the question is, you know, will we ever realize that stakeholder capitalism long-term, you know, gain? And is there, there seems to be a risk that we won't, that, you know, attitudes, uh, you know, specifically related to the environment, constantly getting reports from the United Nations, from other sources that we're on the brink, um, people are about to cross a pollution threshold, a warming threshold. We see this all the time. And these attitudes still exist. And if this risk is, if this risk exists, it seems to undermine a lot of, um, a lot of the thesis. However, beyond the regulatory level, there's a lot of support for this thesis in the fact that, you know, people wanting ESG investing has sort of pushed, has sort of flown through to funds who now want to invest in ESG things, give loans to ESG businesses, uh, and sort of help the environment that way. And if people demand this of finance firms and will give their money to them, then, you know, in a lot of places, those investments will happen. And as more investment pours into sectors like clean energy, it will become more and more profitable as things scale. So there are a few competing, a few competing versions of this playing out in different parts of the country. Whether or not this will be successful in the long term, I don't know. And that's one of the well, that, that's one of the big questions because if if there is a financial case for ESG, and I, I think that there very much is, if there is, then it will likely continue and won't be the next just the next fad that people are interested in. Um, so it's it will definitely be interesting to see where that goes. But yeah, the the time scales are are going to be incredibly interesting to see how it plays out and as climate change progresses what what happens here i think you guys have any thoughts yeah i think you brought up something interesting because you know when you talk about esgs you're talking about environmental and social aspects when you bring up texas something that you know comes to mind is that you know social climates and social progress are not linear in any way and so when we look at, you know, I feel like there's a generally accepted view of what the ESG thesis is. It's, it's focused around increasing liberalism and increasing, um, you know, increasing climate consciousness and what I guess you what you'd say like a uh, recent college graduate consultant going to New York would think is good for the world, right? And so I, I would say that there seems as though there's other forms of ESG. Um, investing. And Texas is an example of that. Texas put that ban on doing business with companies that divested from oil business. That's a protection on what they see their social existence and their social path forward is. So whereas someone from New York would say they're doing the opposite of ESG, they're breaking down the path of human progress, Texas and maybe Alaska would say, this is what our people do. And so you're trying to destroy our path 
of, of human progress. We have a plan to switch over from oil, and that's in 15, 20, 30, 50 years, um, because that's what makes sense for our people. And so I feel as though there's, I mean, you kind of have to look at this social climate and, and a, similarly than the economic climate as this, you know, this giant network. And there's a bunch of agents of different sizes pulling in different directions. And I think the, the places where we're at are all generally pulling in one direction. But, you know, if you go to my hometown in rural Nebraska, if you go into Texas and in the leg state legislature, there's a very different social pull. Um, additionally, some of those places might not be feeling the same environmental impacts as somewhere like northern Canada um, or, you know, somewhere like that. And so I think that it's, it's important to be able to define what each individual place, each individual culture's kind of social direction is to be able to understand how they're viewing their investments because they might all be viewing the same picture through different lenses. So that's that's the initial thing that I thought of when, when you brought that up, so. Yeah, I like that. That's that's super interesting as far as just like, you know, obviously like the perspectives of like where you are and like what you do. I mean, like, I'm sure all being from Nebraska, if tomorrow there was a report that like corn like just kills like the environment and that we just need to stop corn production. Like I'm sure that people would be finding solutions to replace the corn elsewhere, but people in Nebraska and I would be pissed because that's like our livelihood. That's our thing. Generations, blah, blah, blah. And I think like a, on top of the fact that it's rooted like in our like social identity, I think B it's like when it goes back to that time horizon thing, it's never going to make sense to make a switch. Like it's never like financially, it's never going to make sense to spend X millions, billions of dollars up front in the next one, five, 10 years to achieve some long-term goal because objectively that, you know, hurts your returns, hurts your profits, which is not going to be, uh, you know, favored by people who own the company and is going to hurt the value ideally or right, logically in the short term, um, unless you somehow magically have it built into the fabric of your business. I always think about like Patagonia, Allbirds, these companies that like it's in the fabric of their business model to do these progressive things, even if it's at the expense of certain returns. But when you have businesses like BP and they're trying to phase out oil, it's like, well, like <laughs> how the heck do you even do that when that's your, that's your livelihood and no matter what you do, or it's even a company that maybe might be tangentially related to environment. If it's, uh, you know, some tech company that's going to pursue, you know, carbon neutrality, it's like, it's going to cost millions, billions to get there. Um, and in the short term, it's going to hurt. Um, it's just a matter of, I guess, if, uh, shareholders reward that long-term thinking. I think today there's kind of proof around the fact that they don't. Well, I think it also depends on the company, right? Because it, how much money do you have in reserve? A company like Apple can easily risk spending 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars reaching carbon neutrality and neg uh, negativity. Microsoft similar. A company like BP doesn't have enough cash reserves to shut down their business completely and restart it as a wind energy. So they're doing smaller ventures, you know, forays into wind and hydro power and trying to, to do other things. And so I think that it's like shareholders will only be able to reward that type of activity if the company already has the assets to make the switch. If they don't, then the shareholders will likely be like, Give, get me as much money as I can. If you crash and mm -hmm. burn in 15 years, then... I'll get what I can get out of it while I can. And so I think it just depends. Um, but Connor, I'm, I'm sure you have. Yeah. I, I, I love what you guys are saying. Very sharp thoughts. Um, 
I will focus on a couple of them. One, just based on what, what you just said about sort of the cash reserves and the momentum for this. Um, you know, there was a project called Project Arise. Uh, it's in Australia, where a billionaire, the billionaire founder of Atlassian, um, he basically made a takeover for takeover offer for AGL, which is Australia's largest power plant, to basically acquire these assets, these quote unquote dirty assets like uh, coal plants, immediately like uh, start phasing them out, and then replace them with renewable things. And it's wow. It's a big pitch to investors that, you know, we're going to spend $10 billion on these assets, which will have a net return of zero because we will not operate them because they are dirty. And then we will do some other thing. That's a very big pitch. Uh, City, Citibank in the United States tried to do this. It did not work. Um, they were unable to get their clients to give them money in exchange for no returns. Not very surprising. But, you know, it can take the form of, uh, you know, in, in Australia's case, it was basically a, a billionaire with a lot of money on hand was able to do it. So, you know, do you have cash on hand? Do you have the motivation? There's a lot of things that have to come in play for a company to just straight up buy, you know, the dirty assets and dispose of them. And we'll, we'll I think we'll get into this more later. I have some some points I want to talk about with that specifically, but just the straight up, you know, purchase something and then shut it down. Is not is not super sustainable. It can be done in some rare cases, but it's not a compelling pitch to investors. You know, another thing I want to focus on that you guys both talked about is about sort of the contrast in what people view as a social good. Uh, Luke, you brought up the corn in Nebraska. Jared, you talked about the drilling in Texas. This situation, it actually happens. This is a real-world situation that happens with ESG. One example I will bring up about it is that last month, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, the whole world watched um, and is watching the horrific images and videos come out of there. Now, there are many companies that design weapon systems and defense systems. Normally, these are near the bottom of ESG companies. People view defense contractors as funding wars, uh, perpetuating violence, um, leading to a military-industrial complex, lobbying the government to keep wars going, etc. And now, they are sort of ESG in a way, because a lot of companies, you know, if they pass through systems onto Ukraine especially European-based contractors that can be, you know, giving assistance to Ukraine. This is ESG. This is a social good to help this nation defend itself, defend its liberty. And there have been some very interesting developments come out of the EU from this. And the EU is developing an ESG taxonomy to classify what is ESG what is not and it's difficult to make definitions for these things it's difficult to have a text that outlines what a social good is because the nature of a social good can change very quickly Um, it has a lot of cultural context and so now defense contractors who in europe were struggling to get loans 
because they're being sort of froze out in a lot of sectors because of their lack of ESG, are now lobbying the EU to include them in this taxonomy, saying that you, the defense contractors, the, the ones who make missiles, the ones who make bombs, you are ESG, you are the social good, which is just a radical departure from even a few months ago. It's just a completely a, a 180 from these for these companies. And, you know, so, and the EU is listening and they're saying that, you know, now you know, uh, defense is part of sustainable finance and making sure that the EU is secure. So ESG can change over time. And that sort of the fact that it can change over time means that our current conception of it may not be the right one. And it may not be the right one from from place A to place B. And so it definitely is going to be interesting to see in the future how people, how financial firms, how investors agree and disagree over what constitutes a, show, a, a social good. That will be a big point of finance in the next decade or two. And then sort of continuing on this train of thinking about Russia. Um, people, th there are conflicts with within Russia about what to sort of do with assets. So what I mean by this is that Russian assets are now seen as very anti-ESG. Even, even like renewable energy in Russia is no good for outside firms to own because they are funding you know, in a roundabout way, the invasion of Ukraine by holding these assets and operating them. And the question is, what do companies do with them? There are a few sort of options. One is that they sell them. And in the current financial marketplace, there are no buyers uh, for a couple of reasons. One is just the plain reason that a lot of Outside investors are currently not allowed to invest in Russian assets um, because of sanctions and because Ru Russia just does not want that. Uh, and so when the price, w when there are no buyers and a lot of sellers, that means the price of something is going to go down. And if the price of something goes down to a, an absurdly low level, then basically any buyer in Russia can acquire these assets for next to nothing from this company. Well, that you could argue that this is good for Russia for them to be able to do that, to be able to get these assets for almost nothing. Okay, so that's, it's bad for the company. The company should sell. They don't want the assets, they want to sell. But if they sell, they're selling probably to Russia at very low prices. That's not good, okay? So they could hold the assets and basically say, we are divested, but we're holding on to them right now these assets just until we can find a buyer later when maybe sanctions go away. And then the assets are sort of in limbo. You know, who owns them really? Does the company, has the company really divested since they're on their balance sheet? I don't know. That doesn't seem to be a great option. Some people have sort of suggested that maybe they donate the assets. Um, and the question is sort of to whom? Um, if you no one they're, they're they're dirty they are tainted nobody nobody wants to hold on to them they don't make a great donation some people have suggested donating them to Ukraine 
although I'm not entirely sure what that what, what, while while it's while it makes a nice soundbite, I I'm not quite sure what it will do for Ukraine as they won't be able to do anything with the assets um, themselves. So there's really no it, it's a catch-22 with what to do with all of this stuff that is so anti-ESG. Nobody wants it, but getting rid of it could also be anti-ESG. So it it this this concept brings up a lot of you know, moral quandaries and a lot of a lot of sort of social division. So it is it, it's a it's a deep topic. Yeah. What do you guys think? On your your first question <clears throat> around EU developing kind of guidelines criteria for um, ESG, that's super interesting. My question is: Is it really social good if it's regulation? Like, is it really social good if it's a checklist that you know you either are this thing that is ESG if you meet this criteria, and if you bare bones meet the criteria, and if the criteria is pretty far swathing to even include defense? Uh, I like. At what point does um, does ESG agendas influence regulation, and then that regulation just becomes the bare bones, and then what's the next phase, right? So I, I, I'm curious, like, is it really social yeah, good that is, if it's regulation? I, it's an it's an interesting it's a very interesting point to bring up. Um, one thing that this sort of reminds me of is the SEC, um, the regulator for uh, exchanges and securities in the United States of public companies. Um, they do a lot of definition of what is and what is not uh, fraud in, in different in different aspects, um, whether it's swindling investors um, or you know firms taking advantage of each other. There are a lot of different financial fraud um, buckets. However, they also have a general catch-all rule that basically says. Um, you know, not all types of fraud are defined, and there can be fraud that is not <laughs> listed in the SEC regulations, and it may be prosecuted. And if if that was not there, then fraudsters and people wanting to take advantage of the system could always go right up against the line, could make sure that they're not checking some box that's against the law, um, meeting all the requirements but doing everything they can to like basically take advantage of people in the ways that are left available to them by text and law not being written. And it, it reminds me of that because if a list is put into place, like you talked about it, my, my guess is that companies will perhaps check some requirements, but will do everything possible to find loopholes, um, to get around things and still make it sound like they're doing ESG, um, basically moving moving emissions around, quote unquote, uh, from one part of a business to another. Uh, I I feel like I feel like to, to broaden out these sort of catch-all rules, sort of like the SEC has in place, I think can be can be valuable. Uh, in, in a lot of instances where there's there might be a conflict of interest between following the law and making money. And perhaps, you know, in ESG, the general thesis is do what's good, like do what is good for society, do what is good for the world. And, you know, 
that can definitely be achieved without having a list of what is and is not a, a specific list of what qualifies. So I, I, I definitely agree that that the list poses some some quandaries. I feel like you know, I, I want to like say it's such an EU thing to make a list of defining <laughs> what's social good. But like beyond that, I feel like, I mean, really, I feel like the goal of a company who is an ESG or trying to pursue ESG, you know, movement is ultimately it's never going to be about checking boxes. You know, you can write these regulations and then the regulations will exist and you'll check boxes so you don't get in trouble. But ultimately the goal is to uh, convince the grassroots that what you're doing is social good. Because, you know, Connor, like you mentioned earlier, when you convince, you know, everyday people that then push pressure on local governments, put pressure on um, firms that, you know, and then eventually funds start to pick up that steam. And that's kind of what we've seen happen with environmental, environmental quote unquote good. Um, you know, and right now, most of that pressure is being put in like the United States and the EU populace, at least everything we see. But obviously that same pressure is going to be very different for, you know, a company operating in China for example, look at the way Disney operates itself in the United States versus China. Um, the you know positions right now that uh, Disney is now finally publicly taking against the like don't say gay law in Florida is something they would never do in in Beijing because it w- it would not be considered socially good to the populace and therefore there wouldn't be uh, sufficient pressure um, on other investors uh, to take to see them as good. And so I feel like the the goal of companies is kind of like, can we convince everyday people, Luke, you use the term retail investors, which is also super important these days. Can we convince everyday people that what we're doing is good, whether what we're doing is good or not, right? And so like, for example, Ford is planning on breaking out their electric vehicle business from their traditional business. So they have Ford Blue and Ford E or something, some some silly name. But uh you know, that's that's like an effort to make Ford Electric super popular and everyone loves it. And then Ford traditional is like what people rely on. And so I think there's going to be more and more moves, less so than just like trying to tick boxes to tick boxes. I don't think we'll have any effect on true ESG investments and ESG movements. It's going to be all about how can you convince everyday people that what you're doing is good. And that's the real challenge for companies these days, especially when you have such a fragmented populace and a fragmented culture in the West right now. It's like you can only you can only really hit half the population, maybe 60% of the population, and the other half is going to think you're totally evil. And that's you know maybe what you see in Texas versus New York, what you see in half of Florida versus the other half of Florida in relation to Disney. Like It's just like you can't get everyone. And so it's can you get enough people, and specifically, usually they go can we hit the people who have the most money, which at this point in history is typically going to be the younger, affluent, more liberally minded people. And so that's kind of the direction we're having. If that somehow switched, then you might see ESG um, benchmarks and what they target switch as well to try to target the most, the wealthiest and most influential people. I, yeah, I love that. I love like, I think what I'm like hearing is like, is it really social good it's only social good if people think it's social good. 
So it's like, no matter what you do, if it's the bare bones or if it's 10% more than what the bare bones are, if it's a hundred X more what the bare bones are, like how you pitch it, how you show it, how you prove it, how you market it, how you have it in your PR, how you have it in your quarterly, like earnings calls, how you have it in whatever, that's what matters. It doesn't matter if you're actually doing, you know, 20 times beyond what people expect is that however you pitch it and you can pitch the bare bones, you can pitch the minimum as amazing feats. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. It's like, especially if there's a checklist, it's like, is it like, it's how you pitch social good. It's not really always what you do that constitutes a social good. It's what other people think, i.e. real, you know, retail investors, regular investors, the, the total population, regardless, like, what they think is social good. That's what's actually social good. I think, I think this is a, an absolutely fascinating point. And I, I think that, you know, investors, especially retail investors are somewhat beholden to, you know, data they see aggregated on maybe a media site or what's being reported, stuff like that. Fewer retail investors are going to dig into, you know, the 10Ks of companies. However, information about companies and what companies disclose is very frequently shown on different media sites and it's reported in the news all over the place. So one thing that is, is happening in America, not just the European Union, is that the SEC has just proposed a lot of rules regarding disclosure related to uh, environmental targets and emissions that if passed companies will be required to disclose a few things one is if they have climate related risks we we love our risk reports (laughs) Um, if another thing that they'll have to disclose is their scope one emissions scope one emissions are from sources that are directly controlled by a company, uh, so during their normal business activities. Scope two emissions, they'll also have to disclose. And that's basically from any electricity that's purchased by the company. So the emissions from, from that electricity. And these things will have to be audited by, uh, by people who know what's going on, uh, by people who are certified to uh, verify that emissions data is correct and lines up. And if it's not correct, then people will go to jail. And so that it is a, it is a very strict sort of disclosure requirement when it comes from the SEC specifically. And then one thing that a lot of environmental activists are really happy about, um, and that will be big if passed is that companies also have to disclose also will have to disclose their scope three emissions and what those are, are emissions from upstream and downstream activities in the value chain. So if you're producing something that then is later used by another company to generate a ton of emissions, that will be in the downstream emissions and you're in some in some part re- responsible. Wow. And while those specifically might not be audited, they will be required to be in, in reports, in company reports. And the thing is, retail investors might not be reading through all these reports, but the news media will certainly be reporting on it. And if this sort of if this data is out there, then one, it gives all progressive companies an opportunity to highlight the good that they do and the lack of emissions they have and all of that. And 
it removes a hiding place for companies who do a lot of emitting, where normally they don't have to disclose anything like that. They may, might even have in their shareholder letter that they're committed to ESG, and that's that's you know not audited, but this data would be, and so the more transparency that exists in public companies will lead to people being able to make more informed decisions. You know, whether they're a retail investor or an institution, whether they care about the environment or whether they don't care about the environment and, you know, just want to drill all the oil, it will help them make decisions. And so it, people are, people are for and against this. On the one hand, you know, I personally think it's a great idea. People care about this data. And so, you know, they should get to see it. Um, on the other hand, some people argue that it's too much government regulation. Um, and in some regards, uh, th th this is, again, an, an opinion that the columnist Matt Levine, who I referenced earlier, talked about, is that the SEC is sort of a catch-all regulator in that if they pass you know, requirements for public companies to follow um, in their reporting or their activities, then that sort of circumvents Congress. Um, it sort of you know, circumvents a lot of agencies. Um, mm. And if companies are required to do something, the, the SEC is not a regulator of climate by any means. Uh, they're a, you know, a securities regulator. But this will be a massive push toward you know, climate-focused ideas if companies are forced to report this sort of stuff. And so, you know, when we get back to talking about retail investors, you know, whatever they care about, the more information they have, the more is disclosed, the easier it is for them to sort of you know, form their theses, do what they want to do, and not feel like they are being misled by companies. I don't know if, Jared, you have any thoughts? You can go ahead first. Yeah, well, I mean, the the thing that I kind of think about is, does it will it matter as much as it might seem to? I mean, especially to retail investors, um, because I, I you know, there obviously are companies that hide behind the fact that they admit a lot more than they uh, than they would say. Um, but I think it, especially in the case where scope three emissions aren't required and they don't have to you know say anything about upstream or downstream then I think it's going to be a little bit, you know, not very clear on exactly what impact they might be having. Because this is just, they have to report things. It doesn't necessarily say you have to, you have to have it below this number. And so then the question is, do these or this or that investor really care? Um, you know, if a, if a firm, if a fund is really committed to ESG, then they will care. But let's say that it's a firm that's focused on making money. Economy brought up in the beginning. Uh, this, I mean, maybe we dive into this. If you have a financial advisor, if a company you know reports that they have higher than expected emissions, but they're super profitable, and maybe they're even good in other aspects. Let's say they have really high emissions, but they're also really good in social areas that are much harder to disclose in a in a balance statement. Um, you know, where does a fund that is committed to ESG or a financial advisor who has a duty um, to generate high returns, you know, place their decision on that? Because it's this balancing act. They're bad for the environment, but they're good for the social climate 
or what we consider is good for the social climate. Similarly, if you're a financial advisor in Texas, let's say, and would say, hey, this, this company's emitting a lot, so that's good because, you know, that, that's, that's good for us. You know, that's good for, for you because you're an oil-producing family that I'm <laughs> investing for. So, you know, that's going to be good. You know, you know, you can always spin it in different ways. So, like, this reporting data isn't necessarily also going to be unilaterally taken as good or bad if it's high or low, for, per se. And then, you know, there's, you have to mix it with all these other hard-to-quantify aspects, like their social impact. Um, you know, sometimes maybe there's a high carbon cost to decarbonizing. And so maybe you have a company that's, you know, spending a lot, and maybe they explain that in nuanced detail, but that's not going to necessarily make it into the news. If you're spending, you know, huge amounts of carbon to generate carbon capture facilities to offset previous carbon, let's say Microsoft is maybe investing in that, let's say, and that's going to show up negatively. So there's all these, you know, like with anything in finance or in life in general, there's so much nuance that's so hard to capture. Um, and it's like, yeah, let me, I said it was like the EU. It's like governments in general yeah. to try to quantify these problems into, you know, check boxes and, and forms to fill out um, when it's so much harder. And that's not saying they shouldn't do it. I, I agree it's a good idea, but it's just, you know, there's never a, a catch-all. Right. It's, it's always just little steps that can take us in the right direction. But it's so hard to know, you know, where we're going to step next. Yeah, it, that's interesting. Like also like yeah, ideals versus actions, because you're right. Like if it's just for the sake of reporting, like Connor said, it's just like, well, you know, investors who want to use that information to guide their investment decisions, they can. But investors who maybe don't care as much, having the information at their disposal is very interesting, um, but maybe wouldn't influence their decision. It's also interesting when you think about you know, at what point, like, because there's like ESG ideals, and there's actions of the regular consumer. I think two examples top of my head. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Sheen, the clothing company. Um, it's like Forever 21 kind of-ish in the sense that it's fast fashion, but the concept is like, it's this Chinese-based company that just like, just punts out just crazy, crazy like fashion pieces like in changes like seasonality, like every week they have new stuff. Like they're just pumping through different types of, you know, fashion types. And I mean, they're a, I think there's like a huge, like child labor issue. That's one Two, environmentally fast fashion is awful because you have all these fashion things, you throw out the fabric or like whatever it is. But three, they just announced this week that they're raising a hundred or a billion dollars at like a $10 billion evaluation. So it's like, okay, like it, Granted, maybe the people who invested don't have those harsh or those hardy um, ESG beliefs, but it's interesting when you start to blur the lines of, like you said, Jared, it's like if it's a good business, it's profitable, it's gaining traction, has a lot of users, but it's not great for the environment. How do you reconcile that? I think another example is Nike. Like, I'm pretty sure they have a, this could be fake news, but I thought I read it somewhere. They have like a lot of like, you know, like child labor issues because a lot of this stuff comes from China. So it's like, how do you reconcile that? But also people love the product and it's the number one selling, you know, sports brand out there. But um, maybe some of their practices that they bake below the surface isn't the best, but what they'll put in their reports and what they'll put in their marketing is all the money they're donating to this certain charity or all these diversity efforts that they're pushing um, just to hopefully overshadow um, the parts of the ESG that maybe they aren't pursuing and hopefully that the other ones outweigh the cons. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting when you try to balance like the ESG ideals versus, well, if you were to have a portfolio that was purely invested in these rigorous ESG, uh, standards, what are those returns? 
And at the end of the day, if like somebody who's very like, yeah, saving for retirement, I feel super passionate about this. I'm going to tell my financial advisor, you know, the most rigorous ESG companies, like, would I be set up and ready for retirement? Like with that, like approach, probably not. And from a financial advisor perspective, like they would be doing their job wrong um, at the guidance of somebody who maybe was financially illiterate, but financially literate versus, you know, uh, value literate, that becomes interesting. And I think yeah. uh, something that's interesting that you, you know, you bring up about this balancing act. And I think Sheen or Sheen, however you want to pronounce oh, it, yeah. is, uh, or, you know, there's different ways, but there's there's this balancing act between the impact of that manufacturing process, that, that waste problem, the, you know, certainly, you know, uh, human rights abuses that probably happen in the factories with the cultural impact that fast fashion has in the economic generation that it has in the West, where you have huge numbers of people on TikTok generating, you know, what could arguably be considered cultural value through using this fast fashion as part of their brand, as part of Mm. their, um, their content that they develop, which then, you know, churns the American economy and generates what you could consider social good through economic benefit. And so, with all these things, Nike would be another example. You know, how do you? It's it's difficult because when you're when you're looking at finances like this, you have to you have to sometimes make those balances between dangers to society, to human rights, to um, the environment, with economic prosperities. Because there's no, you know, as much as you want to, people want to pretend there is. There's no there's no perfection. There's no uh, company that's generating no negative impacts and only positive impacts. There's always some some balance and. You know, of course, I would say maybe Sheehan's, you know, much more negative than positive. But I think it's also interesting, you know, it's not never just environmental good, you know, in this. There's always these social, these cultural impacts of, you know, what's the value of a TikTok video to American culture? And so what's the value of the Sheehan top that's helping to export American culture to North Africa through a TikTok video? And what that what is that influence worth to, you know, our culture to the world culture to our government etc i think i think what what we're on the precipice of here is that finance something that is incredibly quantitative is difficult to mix with something like esg that is fundamentally qualitative and that is not described best in with numbers, but with attitudes and by opinions um, and by people's stories, and you know you can you can you can quantify some things. How much how much emissions do you do? But is you know what is the context? You know uh, what's the backdrop of these emissions? What what do those lead to or not lead to? And I think that a lot of the a lot of the problems we see, a lot of the hindrance to ESG investing. A lot of the blowback um, stems from the fact that it's really difficult to reconcile a fundamentally quantitative industry and fundamentally qualitative ideals. And it's difficult to put those into an investment calculus, you know, and hand it to somebody. And I don't, I don't know if there's a, there's no silver bullet, um, you could say. Uh, We can all probably hear Dr. Rosenbaum sitting in the back saying it depends. Right, it depends. <laughs> a lot of things depend. And so my, my prediction is that, well, a lot of people will continue to try and 
invest in things that are positive for the environment and that are good for general societal liberalism, that will never be the only focus of investors. And it will never be the only focus of even ESG investors who will themselves have a lot of different ideas. So I think that's sort of a key a key takeaway we can take from this discussion. Love that. Yeah, Jared, do you have agree. any closing thoughts or final thoughts? I think we're, we're nearing our artificial stop time, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. I, I if don't you think have I any. have any, uh, any additional thoughts. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think that we, uh, we hit at the heart of the issue. We, we might not have solved it just yet, but that's why we might need a return episode sometime in the future <laughs> to, to right. finally, you know, finish off uh, finance, you know, figure it out completely. But, <laughs> Solve finance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was an excellent topic. A lot of fun. Uh, I think you're the ending quote around how do you balance finance that's inherently quantitative with ESG that's inherently qualitative. That's a, that's a good sound bite. That'll hopefully tombstone Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> that'll leave our, our listeners on a cliff note. So uh, yeah. love it. Yeah. Any, any, I guess, closing thoughts on the topic, Connor, before we have some of our regularly scheduled segments here in just a second um, towards the end here, but do you have any closing thoughts on your topic? I think, you know, I think we've had some good discussion. I think we, we reached a point where, I mean, I, I came in prepared with some, some notes of what I was going to say, but by the end, you know, we, we were bouncing off of each other. We, we got some good, if not, if not solvency, at least some sort of cohesion with our ideas. <laughs> so I, I do, I do think it's, I, I think it's an issue that will be with us and frequently talked about for the next few decades. And I hope that, you know, in general, investors and institutions, regulators can work to create laws and disclosure requirements and methods for the incentives of people and companies and investment firms to focus on improving our environment so that our planet does not uh, go away, improving social uh, competencies of companies, improving diversity and governance structures of companies. And the thing is, I know that my view will not be shared. And we, we all have to be okay with that in this sort of world. People will want different things. And while I hope that you know, the incentives align for my particular vision of ESG to come to pass, it is impossible to say whether it will or whether other people will want that to happen. So it's something that we're, it's, it's going to be with us a long time and we're going to have to keep thinking about it. Man, love the closing thoughts. And obviously listeners, if you have any thoughts, you know where to find us on unpromptedpod.com. We have a feedback session section. We would love to hear your feedback thoughts on. Luke ESG actually owes notes. someone money. You know, I was hoping you wouldn't bring this up. Uh, I, I do owe a listener some cash. So uh, a little bit of context here. I, you know, we got, we had, we've received zeros upon zeros of f- submissions to our feedback form. And I begged anyone last episode that if they were to fill out a f- submission and cite the part of the episode where I said, if you fill out a form, I owe you $10. Unfortunately, somebody did take me up uh, on that. And fortunately, as someone who is a uh, dear listener and a dear uh, 
close individual to one of our hosts of the podcast. Maybe, Jared, you can explain. Yeah, so our most consistent listener is my brother, Vincent. He loves to listen to our podcast while he works in, the, works in his chicken houses. Um, and he, uh, he's been, you know, idly listening to Luke's pleas for feedback for months. And, uh, and didn't Luke do anything, for the record. Didn't do anything. You know, but it shows how, how convincing you are. Luke kind of spurred him to action, and he, he proved that our website is up and running and that the feedback form works. And he now, um, Luke owes him one half of a Seattle drink. So <laughs> <laughs> that I, I do I do owe ten dollars to this uh, to this fellow. Thank you, uh, Mr. Vincent, for filling out the form. Your your money is coming one way or another. Uh, we'll figure out the best <laughs> way to get it to you. Maybe we'll we'll uh, send you some swag, some signed merch as well. Um, you know, throw in a meet and greet, perhaps. Uh, we'll An figure unprompted out. NFT. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a one of one. That is brilliant. Well, before we close, there is one segment that we have to get in uh, before the end of the of the conversation. It's where um, Jared flexes his history knowledge on all of our listeners, where I usually bring him either a time period, a place, or a person from the past that I want to hear a historical fact about. And I don't want to put you on the spot, Connor, but if you happen to have literally any time frame, literally any historical figure or region of land from the past that you're just interested in learning a little bit more about, Jared probably has some crazy fact that you, or at least I, wouldn't know. So if you have one, uh, you, are, you are the guest. You're more than welcome. Okay. And, and, and are there any parameters on how far back it must be? No. That makes it more fun. I'm going to say no, unless okay. it's like... There's- there are not. Okay. Though I will say so, I'm more worried about Connor's proposed time. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's just it's just more recent than. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. That that will be that will be harder. That will be harder. I know you've gone back far, but have you gone back a small amount? I don't know. Mm. So we'll basically following the following some of our discussion today. Let's go back to Texas before any oil was discovered. Um, take me back to what it was like there and, and what happened when the when the oil was first drilled. Tell us something about that. Okay. So, this isn't my area of expertise, so I'm not going to say anything authoritatively. <laughs> but I can garner a decent amount of pre-oil Texas based on my knowledge of the Mexican-American War and the Texas War of Independence. So, Mm. you know, there was a huge drive, a settlement into Texas, primarily Mm. focused around ranching and cattle ranching. Um, And so, obviously, Texas is still a huge cattle state, but that used to be, you know, as far as I know, that used to be its primary economy. the you know American settlers moved into Texas while it was still a part of the part of Mexico back in the the 1800s. Um, they then broke away from Texas uh, mainly because Mexico didn't allow them to keep their slaves, which they didn't like, um, and developed the Texas Republic, which joined the United States. Blah 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 blah. Uh, I would say oil, which I believe was discovered in Texas in the late 1800s, in the early night er, early. Uh, 1900s um right before that would have been the kind of like the cattle boom 
uh, which happened, you know, if you remember the cattle drives that, you know, moved cattle up from the ranches in Texas, actually, to places like Omaha, Nebraska, where Omaha, Nebraska actually used to have one of the largest cattle um, cattle lots for shipping cattle around the country uh, in the United States. Uh, so, like, pre-oil Texas would have been very agrarian, huge amounts of ranch land owned by large um, landowners. Um, a lot of the, you know, the people, uh, the Mr. Austins, Mr. Houstons, kind of that established you know, important places in Texas were huge landowners that owned a lot of cattle. Um, yeah, so, I mean, mostly revolving around around that, around agriculture, around cattle. Um, you know, there's other aspects, um, like their, you know, their fights with the Comanches and other native peoples there. Um, but yeah, I guess right before oil, it would have been mostly ranching. And then oil came in, and a lot of these similar people that were had a lot of land um, where there was a lot of cattle also, you know, had land where there was oil and continued to become wealthy. Um, but also new people. Generational wealth. Got, yeah, generational <laughs> wealth. Hashtag Texas. But, wow. Yeah. So that is that is my knowledge. Um, not super in depth. Mainly just cows, <laughs> which I think most people could have guessed since it's I'm Texas. Still, but I'm still very impressed. As am I. Man, just casually pulling from his knowledge of the Mexican American War. <laughs> <laughs> of course, <laughs> duh. <laughs> well, you also you also got the cattle drives. You know, classic classic stories. Lonesome Dove all the way. If you remember, if you ever read that book. Nope. <laughs> not personally. <laughs> I highly recommend great great book they go to montana in that book but it's honestly honestly really good really one of one of the few fiction books that i wholeheartedly enjoy wow so i'll put it on the good reads that's for sure yeah. <laughs> well as always uh very impressed by the you know big brain jerry coming out here with uh, amazing history knowledge um and very impressed with the topic today connor that was a lot of fun thanks for joining us uh we'll totally have to do it again soon yeah, yeah, thank you guys so much. I had a great time, and thank you for inviting me. Heck yeah, we'll do it again. Well, and as always, uh, feel free to find us on our website. Feel free to reach out with any thoughts, feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I will not be paying you money if you reach out this time. Uh, that has been redeemed, unfortunately. Um, but we'd still love to hear from you. So, um, yeah, thanks as always. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, everyone. Uh, see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.